0: Now let us turn to the book of Ecclesiastes and chapter 7. Ecclesiastes 7 and from verse 14. In the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider. God also hath set the one over against the other, to the end that man should find nothing after him. All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There is a just man that perisheth in his righteousness. There is a wicked man that prolongeth his life in his wickedness. Be not righteous over much, neither make thyself over wise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? Be not overmuch wicked, neither be thou foolish. Why shouldst thou die before thy time? It is good that thou shouldest take hold of this. Yea, also from this withdraw not thine hand. For he that feareth God shall come forth of them all. Wisdom strengtheneth the wise more than ten mighty men which are in the city. For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. King Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes as it says in the opening verse, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. In this book, Solomon describes people who live under the sun, as his phrase is. That is, they live for things here below without God who is above the sun. And he calls it all vanity of vanities. All is vanity and vexation. Of spirit, meaning it's all emptiness, it's all futility. Now, why is this wise man writing about the vanity and folly of the world? Well, because he fell into this himself, as we know. He departed from the Lord in old age through marrying foreign wives, he worshipped their gods, and he then was no longer close to the Lord and in a period of severe backsliding, he was in the world and he tasted the world's vanity. And his account in this book uh, contains ways in which he went into all that the world has to offer and he tasted it experienced it to the full if you haven't got the Lord to fill your heart if once you have known him you've got to fill it with something else but nothing else can fill it certainly all the world cannot fill it as Solomon found and when he was restored he wrote this book and it is really him having now seen life from both sides as a a godly man who walked in wisdom's ways and enjoyed fellowship with God and then as a backslidden man going into the world so fully as the alternative to try to uh, be a substitute for what he had lost. He's seen life from both sides now And there is a very powerful testimony in this because, you see, he is in the position to make a comparison. He is a man who's known godliness in close fellowship with the Lord. He's known emptiness with all that the world has to offer. And weighing up the two, his verdict is that the world is nothing but vanity and... Uh, that the end of it all and the only wise course is in chapter 12 and verse 13 let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man I say there's a powerful testimony in this I remember being in the presence of a young man who was just coming to the age where he could begin to be independent of his uh, Christian parents and he was hankering after what the world had to offer and talking a bit like this in the presence of uh, another Christian. And this Christian man, who was a lot older, he said, I've seen it all, I've done it all, don't go that way. Very wise words. Sadly, the young man did go that way. Whether he's now of Solomon's opinion, I don't know. But the thing is, you see, having had both, you know which is right, which is best, which is the only way that really satisfies and counts. And you see, we can make this testimony to the unbeliever because uh, most unbelievers living for this world they want everything they can get in it. And they give the impression that this is what life is about. Uh, enjoying oneself in the world. Uh, life is all about pleasure and self-indulgence. Realising ambitions. Getting a lot of money and enjoying material things. And being able to retire early from work like that rich farmer in Luke chapter 12 and having a good number of years to live it up with all that you have but we can say to them on behalf of so many who are now Christians they've gone that way and found it doesn't work there is a king in Israel that went into the world heavier and further than the average unbeliever will ever go in. Because Solomon had riches and wealth and prestige and power and absolutely everything, more than any worldling will ever have. And he's had it all. Been there, done it all. And what's his verdict? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. It's not worth it. It doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy. There's only one place where you are satisfied and blessed and that is being right with God and knowing him and walking in wisdom's ways which are pleasantness and all her paths are peace. So it is a powerful testimony but coming back to Solomon having backslidden having discovered the emptiness of the world and being brought back there is a sense in which that's not a bad thing because if our backsliding and failure teach us wisdom, then the loss can be turned to gain and we can learn from bad mistakes like Jacob did in his perversity and the Lord dealing with him like David In his terrible fall and restoration. Like Peter in his self-confidence and denial and, and yet restoration. The prodigal son. And Solomon himself. And that man that I mentioned earlier. Having come back. And having been even blessed. And I say to you if you are listening to me as someone who has sinned terribly. And have failed grossly and you're far from the Lord and you think, will the Lord ever receive me back? Can I again know that blessedness when first I saw the Lord? I say you can because Solomon is proof positive that you can. And the book of Ecclesiastes assures you that you can only acknowledge your iniquity and repent And come back to God and God will receive you graciously and love you freely and will heal your backsliding. And afterwards you'll be even stronger by his grace and even more of a blessing to others. And you can then say, I've been there, I've done it all, don't go there. There's only one, only one place where you can be blessed. Only one place that's worth living for and that's the Lord himself. Well, now in chapter 7 here, Solomon is suggesting, uh, as the uh, chapter heading puts it, if you have an AV that gives you chapter headings, Solomon is suggesting some remedies against vanity. And one of these is to be realistic. And look at verse 20. For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. In other words, don't expect perfection of yourself or of anyone else. You'll be disappointed. But on the other hand, don't underestimate what grace can do. For someone described like this. A just man upon earth that doeth good, even though he sins. So let us see then what we can learn from these wise words. And I suggest that we have here indirectly stated a description of true religion, real, true, genuine religion. Let's see first of all the person, a just man upon earth. Now there is such a person. It's a reference, of course, to justification by faith. Long ago, Job in chapter 9 and verse 2 of his book asked, How should man be just?" With God. How can anybody be righteous in God's sight, seen as conforming to His holy law and as altogether pleasing to Him? It's a vital question because, of course, of ourselves it's impossible that we can ever be. Romans 3 and verse 10 puts it like this. So categorically. And there are no two ways about this. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. And in verse uh, 19 of Romans 3, we know that whatsoever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, which is us, that every mouth may be stopped And all the world become guilty before God. In other words, if the question is put to any of us, as we are by nature, are you perfect? Have you loved God perfectly? Kept all his commandments? Loved your neighbour as yourself? As you ought? And we say, we've got to put our hand over our mouth, that every mouth might be stopped. Because honestly, before the Ten Commandments, the moral law, we are exposed as guilty sinners. We have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we are not just. We're not righteous. We're not conformed to God's law or God's will. We are ungodly and unrighteous, the scripture says. And so here is a need. And dear friends, not one of us, no one in all the world has ever kept one of God's commandments as they should. Not for a second. It's a completely and totally and interminably course of disobedience through rebellion and uh, wickedness in God's sight. Not one pure thought for one instant. Not one perfect deed have we ever done. Not one even right spirit or attitude in us. Sins of omission, the things we've not done that we should. Sins of commission, the things we've done that we should not. We're guilty before God. And the Ten Commandments are like ten hammers that pound out our guilt and pound us down to the ground as guilty, hell-deserving sinners. Ah, but there was a just man upon earth. Acts 7 verse 52. And Stephen in his preaching calls him the just one. And our blessed Lord as man, his perfect, complete obedience under the law, rendering to God that Obedience every second, every instant of all his life to fulfill all righteousness. And you see, believing on him, God puts to our account that obedience and that righteousness which we have never and could never render. It's called imputation in the scripture. God imputes the righteousness of Christ To every sinner who believes in him so that he is counted by God as righteous as Christ is righteous. The same best robe and covering. The same wedding garment that perfect obedience rendered to God. And it's as if we ourselves had rendered it. That's what imputation means. Made as if it had always been ours. And it gives us a standing and a status before God. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. Christ is made the righteousness of God in him. Meaning uh, God's righteousness that he requires but that he gives and supplies and see Romans eight verse one: In Christ, no condemnation. Why? Well, because justified. God, the Judge, has declared it is a verdict He's pronounced upon us—just, righteous, accepted forever. Romans eight thirty-three. We were looking at this last Sabbath evening, weren't we? Weren't we? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth, and so. Although there is not, humanly speaking, a just man upon earth, divinely speaking, there was. And he kept that law, not for himself alone, he did not need to, but as a public person, keeping it on behalf of all his people, to whom that would be imputed by God upon their believing in the Saviour. Now, notice I said imputed, not infused. And there is an important difference between the two. And we're not splitting hairs here. The Roman Catholic Church speaks of infused righteousness, whereby someone who professes faith, God infuses the righteousness of Christ into him so that he has righteousness, (coughs) but that it is something that changes him inwardly and outwardly and that he's got to then contribute his obedience and good works and all that the church prescribes so that he will grow in that righteousness and hopefully on the day of judgment there might be enough that will secure his entrance to heaven that's infused righteousness but you see the difference is in imputed righteousness which isn't an internal thing it's an outside of us thing whereby God makes a pronouncement upon us it's a forensic thing uh, a verdict that the judge pronounces not guilty righteous accepted in my son and it's something that doesn't work a change in us not our state it's a change of our standing before God. And that is the important thing. Now look, there, this is where we are. A just man upon earth. And it's interesting that four times in the New Testament, we read this phrase. The just shall live by faith. That's how he became justified. Justified through faith in Christ alone. And that's how he lives, believing on Christ, looking to Christ's righteousness for his acceptance. Martin Luther, this dawned on him by the teaching of the Holy Ghost. And he says, this passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven because he was trying to do it by his own works and by being the best monk that could possibly be in that monastery but he could never, ever have peace. In his view, God was angry with him, frowning upon him. Martin Luther was a a lawbreaker, a sinner against God. What can possibly change his position before God? And he found that what could change it, and the only thing that could change it, was by believing on Christ and receiving by faith that imputed righteousness whereby all his sins were blotted out and he was adjudged righteous and this very God whom he saw as frowning and angry became the God who was smiling and pleased. Ephesians 1 verse 6, accepted in the Beloved. Never lose sight of this, my dear friends. It's a wonderful thing. You can express it like this. In Matthew 3, verse 17, at our Lord's baptism, the Father's voice came from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Because he was already fulfilling all that righteousness and would do so but in whom I am well pleased, because all the elect were in Christ. And the Lord Jesus was doing this on behalf of all of his people to give away his righteousness, which God would impute to them. And so by that token, if you're a Christian tonight, God says of you, this is my beloved child, in whom I am well pleased, Because you're in Christ and you are as righteous in God's sight as Jesus Christ is in his sight. And that's a staggering thing, isn't it? Henry Smith said, He hideth our unrighteousness with his righteousness. He covereth our disobedience with his obedience. And oh my dear friend, in the righteousness of Christ, you stand high in the favour of God. You stand higher in God's favour than unfallen Adam and Eve did. You stand higher in God's favour than unfallen angels do because you have a divinely wrought righteousness over you and upon you that God sees and that God receives you on the basis of And you can come to God in fellowship and oneness, knowing you're accepted. You have access, favour, all is love, all is blessing. Yes, there is a just man upon earth, every justified sinner where we are now. But one further thing in this person, there will be another place where this is true as well. Not only upon earth... That's just the beginning of it. But because it is, it means it will be in heaven as well. In Hebrews 12 and verse 23, you've got that wonderful description of the blessed. The justified ones who have left this world, have departed to be with Christ in heaven. God the judge is mentioned in that passage in Hebrews 12. And then comes this. And the spirits of just men made perfect. And now you see their justification is accompanied by something else that's now complete. Sanctification. Made perfect. Through life, justified, counted righteous in Christ, in death, leaving all the sinning and failing and coming short behind and entering that world made perfect. A judge so forever. It's not that they're more justified now in heaven, but it's that they've entered into the comfort and the joy and the glory of it in a way that could never be done here below. Do you feel your justification? As you could wish. Do you really rejoice in the fact that I'm right with God? I'm received in Christ. God sees me just as he sees my beloved son. Do you feel that? Well, sometimes we wish we could feel it more. But my friend in heaven, we shall feel it. We shall enter into the fullness of comfort and joy concerning it. Made perfect. We... Sorrow over believers we have lost. But they don't sorrow. They rejoice. Because now everything that they could never be as to their state here below. Not their standing, but their state. Their sanctification, their holiness, their actual righteousness. All that they could never be fully, they are now. And all made perfect. Oh, the perfectedness. What it must be like in heaven to see the Saviour's face, to see the glory of God, to have company with the holy angels, to be with all other believers now having come home to God, to be reunited with lost loved ones, A, a wife reunited with her husband, parents reunited with children. Brother reunited with his sister, friend with friend. Oh, what a wonderful meeting together. The spirits, not their bodies yet until the resurrection, but their spirits now. Just men made perfect. More happy, but not more secure. The glorified spirits in heaven, as Top Lady put it. My dear friends, would that we could see this and believe this and know and feel this more than we do. But oh, it's going to be a glorious time. Those times when perhaps in prayer or under preaching or reading the Bible and the Holy Spirit seals home to you your acceptance in the beloved and God gracious to you. A God of favour and goodwill and peace because you stand in Christ. Oh, the Warmth and the comfort of that doesn't it give encouragement in prayer? Doesn't it draw you out in love to the Lord? Doesn't it make you say, Lord, I love thee, I praise thee for thy wondrous grace, what thou hast done to me, a sinner, what thou hast made me a sinner justified in Christ? And you hold your head up high and you go forth into this world and into daily life, the song of the justified. The joy of the free. But oh, to actually be made perfect in all that. The comfort and joy of it. And to be actually without sin. Nothing but righteous. And as we saw this morning, the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. To think of this, that it will be impossible ever again to have any thought that is not to the glory of God, any word that is not dishonouring to him, any action that comes miserably short. But all you can do is be righteous All that you ever will be is holy. Nothing but that. Oh God, the judge, just men made perfect to depart and enter glory. The enjoyment of these things and then the very universe and this very planet, this earth on which we live, made partaker of this as well. And so a just man upon earth, the person. Let's look secondly at the result. There is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. But he does do good and he will do good because, of course, faith without works is dead and it is true isn't it that when we're justified we're also regenerated with a new heart and therefore we want to do what is good and right not as part of our justification our Lord's finished work is all that God requires by faith alone but faith never remains alone And every just person on earth doeth good. It's got to be. It's our gratitude, isn't it? And the epistle of James, which speaks about our being justified by works in the sense of evidence of our justification. Not the procurement of it, but the evidence of it. Daniel Cordray, one of the Puritans, he put it like this. As the apple is not the cause of the apple tree, but the fruit of it, even so good works are not the cause of our salvation, but a sign and a fruit of the same. You'll never get a justified sinner who will be living unto himself. Like the Apostle Paul, Lord, what what, uh, wouldst thou have me? to do like the Lord Jesus Acts 10 verse 38 he went about doing good and the sense of our justification is a great impetus to service to obedience to doing good for the Lord's sake and there's a a wonderful freedom about this isn't there You see, those who belong to a works-based religion, they're conscious that everything they do, hopefully, will contribute to their justification. Like Roman Catholicism, like the sects, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons and all the rest, and the other foreign false religions, they're all works-based. The uniqueness of the gospel is faith in Christ alone. Brings us the free gift of justification. But these poor people, they work so hard and very sincerely too. And they're conscious that hopefully they're going to contribute to their justification. And so they do good. But you see, the motive is selfish, really. Can never be out of love for him who has justified me it's rather well I hope that this will help me forward and gain me some merit on the day so that I'll be uh, accepted the zeal of some of these people is staggering isn't it you know there was a town in North Wales and uh, one minute it was empty uh, an empty plot of land and then after just a weekend, there stood a church there, a meeting place, the Kingdom Hall of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And almost in one weekend, they had bust in from various places scores of them to, to do the building work and the erected and so on. Well, a little bit more than a weekend perhaps, but it was, it was not there one minute and then there the next. And they must have given up their time and their talents and their strength all to erect this place of worship because, you see, in addition to their going round spreading the message of the kingdom and visiting people and so on to try and win converts, it's all works, works, works. Hopefully, to get me into the kingdom, hopefully I will be all right at the last day. And it's selfishness. Selfishness. And, of course, the devil drives his servants, doesn't he? With a zeal that is commendable but it's not a zeal according to knowledge the Pharisees compassed sea and land to make one proselyte but the beauty of free sovereign grace justification in Christ is that our good works play no part at all as to our standing before God and our hope of heaven they're done for the sake of the dear master to whom we owe everything and that's a liberating thing isn't it because there's an impotence Uh, there is rather an incentive Um, the apostle Paul said the love of Christ constraineth us And what a wonderful motive that is, isn't it? It's found in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3. Remembering, says Paul, in these new converts at Thessalonica, your work of faith, your labour of love, your patience of hope, knowing that by believing they were saved right with God, they laboured lovingly and they had a continuance a patience and a hope of blessing now and in the future. That's the result. Doeth good. Are you justified? Are you doing good? What good are you doing? Not to make your standing more secure or more certain, but to do it freely and lovingly for his dear sake. If you owe everything, To the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing should be too much trouble to do for him. No trouble at all. Do it cheerfully. All you can. Within reason. Because he is worthy. What shall I render unto the Lord. For all his benefits to me. I'll render all I can. In gospel gratitude. For he is worthy. So that's the result. Isn't that wonderful? Some, some unbelievers, they look on at Christians, they say, I could never do what they do. That's amazing. They just are so self-denying. And they put the Lord first and the church and Christian people and so on. They don't seem to have any, t- any thought for themselves. It's awful. I could never be like that. You could be like that by God's grace. Because when you're justified, when you're right with the Lord, when you love him for what he's done for you, then you want to show that love in serving him and doing his will. Self doesn't come into it. Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, his name is all that counts. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That's what moves the church forward. That's what furthers the gospel. That's what makes a happy and a serving people together. We're right with God. We've got the very righteousness of Christ upon us and the Saviour with us, whose we are and whom we serve. May it ever be like that. Well, let me close by saying this. Not only the person and the result, but the lessons. There is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Ah, that Sad trio of words. And sinneth not. Because none of us actually is perfect yet. Nothing we do is ever perfect. Much as we seek it to be. And much as we know it should be for him. When I would do good, says Paul, evil is present with me. The lines of that poem, and they who fain would serve thee best are conscious most of wrong within. And you see, we aim high. We aim for the glory of his name in pleasing him, doing everything the utmost for his highest. And we find that there are perhaps thoughts of pride or self or resentment. Contrary things, the motions of sins within, they who fain would serve thee best are conscious most of wrong within. It's a humbling thing. We can never do anything perfectly without it being mixed. And our utmost comes short. John Newton, who had been in the world, done it all, seen it all, and then was gloriously saved. And he wrote, Alas, from such a heart as mine, what can I bring him forth? My best is stained and dyed with sin. My all is nothing worth. You see, that's real experience. He had been a great sinner. He had a great saviour. But, ah, he could not be all that he could wish to have been. Because there is this imperfection that clings to everything. No preacher will ever think that he has ever preached the sermon that he ought to have preached. No Sunday school teacher will ever think that he's presented a perfect lesson for the younger ones. No open-air preacher will ever think, ah, that's, that's it, that's the acme the zenith couldn't get any better than that never think like that any evangelism any good works in kindness to others will never think can't get any better this is perfect this has reached it this has arrived we will always come away and think ah oh lord forgive me it wasn't as it should have been forgive my shortcomings my imperfections but the lord will accept it because it comes from a sincere heart and in jesus name but where's the room for pride in this you see none of us can ever think i'm i've really got got it here i've really arrived There's no one that can touch me for the performances I do, the things that I do for the Lord, my works, my service, what I've accomplished. There's nothing. That is a million miles away from how it should be and really is in real heart religion. Not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Oh, those post-mortems. You ever had post mortems? Every, every preacher has a post mortem. And he comes away thinking, oh, I should have said that. I wish I had included that. Why didn't I remember to say that? Has this been really a proper handling of the Word of God? Has it rightly divided the Word of truth? Has it really been with a single eye? To his glory and so it will be for us all that's very humbling but not depressing because the Lord through our Lord Jesus Christ accepts our poor poor service as they come through his hands we read in Exodus 28 verse 38 the iniquity of the holy things but then we read That Aaron is there to bear the iniquity of their holy things. And our great high priest in heaven bears the iniquity of our holy things and bears them away and bears them up to God perfected. So that we wouldn't recognize them the other end of the process as they have left us. And so what a wonderful thing. Don't be discouraged, dear friends. Ralph Erskine said that his sins did him more good than his good works, in the sense that they kept him humble and dependent, and the thought that if ever there's going to be any blessing, it must be the Lord alone who gives the increase. And so may we then glory only in the Lord. Thank God that there are just ones upon the earth that do good, even though with so much sin, but bless God for justification by faith, safe in Christ, all in him. May we know it for his name's sake. Amen.